So to get us going, to get us in the right frame of mind, to set the context, I've got to walk you through some of the history that leads up to the moment that is the beginning of the book of Daniel. And our story really begins almost 1,100 years before the birth of Christ when a man named Saul is anointed as Israel's first king. And you might remember the story. The people of Israel say, we want a king. Every other nation has a king, and we want to be cool too. We want a king. And God says, well, you don't need a king. I'm your king. And they're like, yeah, 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 but we want a king. And he says, okay, but you're not going to like it. They're like, that's okay. Give us a king. And they get their first king, and it's Saul, and it all goes horribly wrong. Well, after Saul, though, comes a man named David, who the Bible says is the greatest king that Israel ever had. And he has about a 30-year period of time where Israel is following God. They're keeping his commands. God is blessing the nation incredibly. It's the best few decades in the entire history of Israel. David is succeeded upon his death by his son Solomon, who many of you know because he is famed as the wisest man who ever lived. However, Solomon did things like marry hundreds of women who had foreign pagan gods that they served. And he said, sure, just bring your gods in. The more the merrier. You worship my God, I'll worship your God. We'll all just get along. It'll be wonderful and fine. And of course, it was disastrous. And around that time begins a stretch of history where Israel goes for 490 years rebelling against God in a row. That's an impressive and horribly unimpressive streak at the same time. 490 years. Following the death of Solomon, there's civil war in Israel, and around 930 BC, the country splits in two. There's a northern kingdom, and there's a southern kingdom, which includes the holy city of Jerusalem. In the northern kingdom, things go from bad to worse, and they will ultimately be conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC, leaving only the southern kingdom and Jerusalem in play. Well, throughout this 490-year season of rebellion, God is telling Israel through his prophets that they need to repent. They need to change the direction that they're going in. He's saying, you guys are going in a direction that I can't bless. You're doing things that I can't get behind. And he says, if you don't repent, some really bad things are gonna happen. But they don't listen. For example, in the early 700s BC, more than 100 years before the birth of Daniel, God speaks through one of his prophets, Isaiah, and I put it on your outline. We read, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hezekiah is the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, at that time, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon, underline Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. That's a serious, serious warning. I think you would agree. God's telling them that if they don't repent, he's gonna use Babylon specifically as his hand of judgment on Israel. So what is Israel doing that is so serious that it demands this sort of attention and these sort of threats from God? Well, Jeremiah records the thoughts of God during this time and tells us this. It's also on your outline. They have also built the high places of Baal to, and then underline, burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak nor did it come into my mind. 
Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but rather the valley of slaughter. You see, as Israel began to intermarry with pagan cultures, they began to adopt and serve their pagan gods. And one of those gods was named Baal. And what pleased Baal was the burnt sacrifice of infant children, something that God literally says was unthinkable to him, unthinkable. It was simply post-birth abortion is what it was. And you can imagine how handy it would be if you selfishly didn't want any more children to simply be able to get rid of them by sacrificing them to Baal. You see, we don't do that today, but we do still sacrifice children to the God of convenience, to the God of ourselves, And we do it before they even have a chance to be born. You see, we go into the protected place of the womb, the safest place a child is supposed to be, and we kill them there. And though Baal may be a false god, it's it's a very real spirit. And the same spirit that drove the Israelites to sacrifice their children to Baal over 2,500 years ago is the same spirit that's alive and well today, leading tens of millions of people around the world to have abortions in the name of convenience and freedom. It's the same spirit who deceives and tells us, you know, this is, this is the right thing to do. It's the same spirit. As Christians, we stand against abortion because the Bible tells us people are created to bear the image of God. It means we are created and designed by God to reflect Him on the earth. That's why people are created. We believe that God is the creative power behind the existence of every single person. He created them with souls that will live forever, and we believe the Bible makes it clear that children are a gift from the Lord. We could go on and on talking about this. But to give you another example of the sorts of things Israel had gotten themselves into, Ashtoreth was the female counterpart of the male god Baal. And Ashtoreth was represented by a totem pole-like structure called an Asherah pole, and it would be a limbless tree trunk, trees that would have all their branches cut off so that it would look like, you can figure it out. They would be living or dead and would often have phallic symbols and various sorts of sexual activities carved into them. Yeah, what your mind went to right there? Yep, that's the sort of stuff that was carved onto them. And the way you would worship Ashtoreth was by meeting a bunch of fellow worshipers around one of these poles and pretty much just engaging in an orgy. In fact, if you went to Ashtoreth's temple, you would worship her by paying to have sex with one of the official temple prostitutes. It's a phenomenal fundraising strategy. You can, you can fill a whole building fund in six months. It's incredible, but we've been told there's some legal issues with this, so we're sticking to things like bake sales for now. But uh, you can imagine that, uh, strangely, everyone showed up on time for church. People rarely missed a gathering. They were all about the fellowship when this rampant sin was going on. And during a very brief time in this 490 years, there was a sort of a mini revival under one king named Josiah. And something is recorded in scripture that came out during this time. This is also on your outlines. In 2 Kings 23, it says of Josiah, and he brought out the wooden image, that would be the Asherah pole, from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, 
burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons. Those were literally male cult prostitutes that were in the house of the Lord. So understand how bad it had gotten. It had gotten so bad, not only did they have these Asherah poles, but they had set one up in the temple. Not only did they have temple prostitutes, but the temple prostitutes were operating out of the temple, the temple of the living God. And this is referring specifically to male cult prostitutes who are available for homosexual relations as temple prostitutes. This was a bad, bad situation. And God keeps telling Israel to repent, but they never do. Well, we zoom out in world history And in 612 BC, the Assyrians' capital city of Nineveh is conquered by Media and Babylon. This marks the beginning of the end of the Assyrians' dominance in this region of the world in this season in history. Around three years later, in 609 BC, Pharaoh Necho II leads his Egyptian army against what's left of the Assyrian Empire and scores many, many victories, actually killing King Josiah along the way. As a result, the Egyptians become the main ruling power in the region. So this is sort of a region of upheaval. Nineveh falls, the Assyrian Empire begins to crumble, the Egyptians, Pharaoh Necho, rise to prominence. It's a a sort of tumultuous time in world history. Well, around that time, just a few years now before the book of Daniel begins, God speaks again through his prophet Jeremiah and says, it's on your outline as well, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, underline Babylon, 70 years. So again, we see God reiterating that Babylon is going to be his hand of judgment against Israel. And we'll see that Israel is gonna be under Babylon's rule for a period of 70 years. Well, why 70 years? It's because under the law of God, the land itself was to be left to rest every seventh year. So you could farm the land, you could work the land for six years, but that seventh year, you had to leave it alone. You couldn't require the land to give you anything. You had to let the land fallow. You had to let it rest. It was a Sabbath rest for the land. And what God was doing in that is he was teaching his people, listen, I know this is gonna look counterintuitive to those looking in from the outside, but you need to have faith that I'm going to bless you so much during those six years that you're gonna have enough stored up to leave the land alone for that seventh year. And it's gonna remind you that I'm the one who sends the rain, I'm the one who brings the harvest, and it's gonna be a testimony to those around you that your faith is in me. Of course, we know today that this is actually the best way to treat farmland, to keep it fertile, and to keep it productive over the course of time. Israel had chosen to ignore that command for 490 years as they were rebelling against God. So God says, because you've done that, I'm gonna get those Sabbath years back that you owe me. 490 years you've been rebelling. Let's divide that by seven and you come up with the number of 70. And God says, you owe me 70 Sabbath years for the land. So the way the land is gonna get rest is you're all gonna be taken off to Babylon. You're gonna be conquered. There's gonna be nobody to touch the land and I'm gonna get those 70 Sabbath years against your will. That's why 70 years. So how does this all go down? Well, we zoom back out in world history. It's 609 BC. Pharaoh Necho has led Egypt to become the new power in the region. But just three years later, around 605 BC, something 
amazing happens. You see, up to this point, Babylon has not been an empire. It's simply been a city-state in the Assyrian Empire. But the ruler of Babylon has a son who turns out to be a brilliant military general. That son's name is Nebuchadnezzar. And in 605 BC, he leads the Babylonian army to fight against Pharaoh Necho II at the Battle of Carchemish, and he wins. This is the moment in history when Babylon becomes more than a city and begins to become an empire. And in this series, you're gonna find out what world history will also tell you, which is that the Babylonian empire was the greatest empire that existed in the history of the earth, and Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king who has ever lived in the history of the earth. This is not small time stuff, we're talking about the greatest empire that dwarfs and eclipses the Romans, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the everybody else you can think of, basically, before I name someone who doesn't actually exist. Really, really, really important. So Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem and he releases its king, Jehoiakim, to be a vassal king. To be a vassal king means that you're a king, but you're under the authority of another king. So he's just basically saying, yeah, you can rule yourself, but we know who's boss here. You're gonna pay tribute and taxes to me and things like that, but other than that, you can go about your business. Jehoiakim was a godless ruler and negotiated his position with Nebuchadnezzar by giving him treasure from the temple, artifacts from the temple, and some of the Jewish royal family and nobility as hostages. So the idea is, hey Jehoiakim, you get out of line, maybe I'll just kill all these hostages that I'm taking with me to Babylon. They're collateral. Among those who are taken from the nobility, from the royal line to Babylon, are four teenage princes. Daniel and the three young men that we will come to know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, part of the Babylonian strategy when they would conquer a country is they would drain that country of its most brilliant citizens, its smartest, most promising talent, and its most creative artists as well. And that's what they do. They scope out the country. They say, who is the next generation of brilliant young men? Militarily, intellectually, philosophically, artistically, they're going to take them all back to Babylon. And they're going to put them into a three-year assimilation program where they're going to be taught by the best teachers in Babylon about academics, but also about Babylonian culture. The goal is that when they finish this process, they have become Babylonians in their thinking. And so the Babylonian empire is strengthened with incredible talent resources, and the country where they're from is hurt, and it's much harder for them to rebuild because they've lost all their best and brightest potential leaders. So this first siege of Jerusalem begins the period of 70 years that was God's determined time for Israel to be in exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, on his way back from defeating the Egyptians, sieges the city of Jerusalem, strikes a deal with Jehoiakim, and takes a bunch of people, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, back to Babylon. While he is there in the middle of that siege, he finds out that his father has died, and he's returning to Babylon as it's new, king. You know, it's incredible when you stop and realize that the Lord gave Israel 490 years to repent. 490 years. 
And I just want to mention as an aside that this is what Jesus is referring to. Some of you will remember this. When he has the interaction with Peter in Matthew 18, we read, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Shall I be so generous, God, that I would forgive him seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is how much? 490. You see what Jesus is doing, he's making an intentional illusion that Peter would have picked up on as to how long God was patient with Israel, how long God forgave Israel. And he's saying, Peter, that's what grace looks like. The patience and grace that God had with Israel for 490 years. That's how you're to forgive and love people. So, God always gives warnings before he brings discipline. All I'm gonna say on this is if God is warning you about something, I encourage you to be proactive about responding to his warnings. He's so patient and gracious, but it's not so that we can keep on sinning. It's not so that we can think, oh, I'm getting away with it and nothing's going to happen. He's patient and gracious that we might repent before he has to step in and bring discipline because repentance is a much better option than God having to bring discipline into our lives. If he is warning you, choose to respond to that because the discipline will come. You're not getting away with anything. He's simply being patient and gracious. Well, a few years later, it's 601 BC, and Jehoiakim is surrounded by false prophets, and they keep urging him to rebel against Babylon. They're saying, listen, Jehoiakim, we're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. Everything we do is going to prosper. So rebel against Babylon, against Nebuchadnezzar, and everything is going to work out. At the same time, God's real prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, are telling Jehoiakim, don't you do it. Babylon is God's chosen vehicle of discipline against Israel. Yield to the will of the Lord. If you rebel, if you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, the city's going to be destroyed. And what's the one thing we know about the ministry of Jeremiah? Nobody ever listens to Jeremiah. That's what we know. And Jehoiakim doesn't listen to him either. In fact, he has Jeremiah thrown in prison, and both him and Ezekiel are treated like traitors. Jehoiakim finally does rebel. Nebuchadnezzar again lays siege to Jerusalem, this time for three months. Jehoiakim dies during the siege, and his son, Jehoiachin, he's also known as Jeconiah or Coniah, takes over until the siege ends, and it ends with Nebuchadnezzar taking the city again. He pillages the temple, takes more Jewish nobility back to Babylon with him, including, this is very interesting, including the prophet Ezekiel. Did you realize that? That Ezekiel is in Babylon at the same time as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you know anything about the kind of prophetic visions that Daniel and Ezekiel have, what the heck did those guys talk about over coffee? That would have been unbelievable to listen in on. So in the second siege, Ezekiel is taken as well. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar takes 10,000 members of the Jewish nobility and 1,000 of their best artisans. So Nebuchadnezzar then immediately appoints a new vassal king named Zedekiah. Both Ezekiel from Babylon and Jeremiah, who's still in Judah, are giving the same message to the new king Zedekiah. They're saying, don't make the same mistake Jehoiakim made. Don't rebel against Babylon. This is the discipline of the Lord. If you rebel, the city is gonna be destroyed. But what do we know about Jeremiah? 
Nobody ever listens to Jeremiah. And so of course Zedekiah doesn't listen. He forms an alliance with the Egyptians and he attempts to revolt against Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC. Nebuchadnezzar returns again, lays siege to the city for a third time. Only this time, he's just fed up with these Hebrews. He's like a parent who is like trying to watch a sports game and the kids keep making noise. Third or fourth time he's getting up, something is gonna happen. The consequences are gonna be severe because dad is saying, I'm getting up, but this is the last time I'm getting up. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. This time he comes in, he takes the city. He doesn't just lay siege to it, he destroys the whole city, levels it to the ground, brings the temple down brick by brick, and Judah becomes a Babylonian province. We read about this in 2 Chronicles, it's on your notes. It says, then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, underline Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah and then underline until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath and then underline to fulfill 70 years. Just talking about the fact that they were gonna be in Babylon for 70 years so the land could have those 70 years of Sabbaths that they owed the Lord. And then one of the prophecies that Ezekiel delivered to Zedekiah from the Lord says this, I will also spread my net over him, speaking of Zedekiah, and he shall be caught in my snare. Underline this, I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, and then underline this part, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. This is gonna be an amazing insight into the precision of the word of God. So God gives this strange prophecy to Zedekiah. He says, listen, you're gonna be taken to Babylon, but you're not gonna see it. And you're thinking, well, well, how could that be? That doesn't make any sense. Well, Jeremiah records what happened shortly after that. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. See, Nebuchadnezzar had him blinded before leading him to Babylon. Indeed, he would be taken to Babylon, but he literally would not see it. You see, when God speaks, it's wise to listen. He means what he says, and he says what he means, and his word is incredibly, incredibly precise. The book of Daniel is an amazing book to study because it has three incredible benefits to it. There's the practical example of the life of Daniel and what this incredible man's life can teach us about living for God. There's really only two men in the Old Testament that the Bible says quite a few things about but has nothing negative to say about. The only two men that applies to is Joseph and Daniel. You can take a look at the life of David, there's the whole Bathsheba thing. You can take a look at Abraham, he's got some issues with getting drunk and naked in front of his family. You can take a look at a lot of people. There's bad, crazy stuff written about a lot of people in the Old Testament, but Joseph and Daniel, there's nothing negative recorded about them. Obviously they still sinned, but they were incredible, incredible examples of how to live. We're also gonna get incredible insights into how the spiritual world works and how it's organized. This spiritual dimension that we can't see, 
yet that affects everything that takes place where we can see things unfold, has some incredible things revealed about it in this book of Daniel. We're also gonna see the most amazing prophecies recorded in the Bible, some which have yet to be fulfilled. In fact, the prophecies in the book of Daniel are so precise, laying out empire after empire with stunning specificity, future history in incredible detail. Some of it has already been fulfilled and it was so precise that many people began to say the only explanation is that the book of Daniel must have been written centuries after the actual Daniel lived and then it was just attributed to him posthumously. So after his death, somebody wrote this and said Daniel wrote it, but he wasn't really the one who did it. There is of course another explanation that Daniel really was a prophet who really did hear from God. And that's the view that was held by Jesus himself when he quoted Daniel in Matthew 24, 15 and Mark 13, 14. And he attributed the writings of Daniel to Daniel the man. In fact, he called him the prophet Daniel. So don't do hours and hours of research into who really wrote the book of Daniel. You know what you can do instead? You can just believe Jesus because Jesus believed that Daniel recorded the book of Daniel and was a legitimate prophet. And I don't know about you, but when it comes down to any human being's word against the word of Jesus, I'm gonna go with Jesus and save myself a whole bunch of work in the process. The truth is that Daniel is the most authenticated book in the whole Bible. It was translated in its entirety, along with the rest of the Old Testament, into Greek around 270 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. This was done because under Alexander the Great, Greek was the dominant language of the empire, the known world at that time. And so people wanted to read the scriptures in Greek. That Greek translation of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. And you hear that and you go, that's cool, that's great, but why does that matter? Well, it matters because the single most incredible prophecy recorded in Daniel is found in Daniel chapter nine, and it relates to the exact date that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey and declare himself to be Messiah. Here's why it matters, because we have copies today of the Septuagint, including the entire book of Daniel that date back more than 200 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, which means it was impossible that that prophecy was forged because we have actual copies of it in hand today from more than 200 years before Jesus was even born. Not only that, but Josephus, well-respected, important historical figure. He was a Jewish historian who worked for the Roman Empire, tells us in his writings that in 322 BC, Alexander the Great was coming down through the Middle East, as history tells us, conquering country after country after country. And when he reached Jerusalem, he was about to take the city when the high priest comes out of the city to meet him. And to his amazement, the high priest says, Alexander, you are mentioned in Scripture and you are mentioned in scripture that was recorded more than 300 years ago. And that high priest produces a scroll of the book of Daniel and shows Alexander where his empire is found in the writings of Daniel. And it says in the writings of Josephus that those writings of Daniel were more than 300 years 
old. Incredible, well-known historical event. You can go look into secular history and that moment when Alexander confronts this priest is a well-known historical fact because of what Alexander does in response. He's so blown away, he spares the city of Jerusalem because of the book of Daniel. Incredible, incredible stuff. The prophecies in the book of Daniel are so precise that they prove that not only is God real, but the Bible is the word of God and has an author who exists outside of space and time. Can't prove the Bible is true. Can't prove God is real. You can. And the book of Daniel does. And we're going to see that in great detail as we get into the back half of it in our study. The book of Daniel confounds the critic and it confirms the Christian. And I must confess to finding this book somewhat of a guilty pleasure in this sense. Because there are those who will say, you know, everything the Bible says about the end times and about the future is, is allegorical. It's nonspecific. It's all like visions and like poetic language. It doesn't mean any specific stuff. It's just noise. Daniel is very, very problematic for the person who takes that view because so much of Daniel has already been fulfilled, literally. And so it makes no sense to say, well, yeah, those parts were fulfilled literally, but the parts that haven't been fulfilled yet, those aren't literal, that's just nonsense noise. No, you see, it makes far more sense to assume that the future prophecies will be fulfilled in the same manner as those that have already been fulfilled, literally. That's exactly what we believe about the book of Daniel. All we're saying is, no, we believe that the prophetic pattern of Daniel is simply going to continue. It's the most logical view. And if you have any other view, you have to come up with a compelling reason for why you would make a 90 degree turn when the book of Daniel has already established a pattern of no, it gives prophecy and it comes true. Therefore, we believe the things it says about the future are going to come true. It's gonna be fascinating to study this together. We're also gonna find that the back half of the book of Daniel contains some critical keys to unlocking one's understanding of the book of Revelation. In fact, Jesus himself, when his disciples ask him for a private briefing about the end times, saying, tell us about how this world is gonna end Jesus. Jesus himself points to a prophecy in Daniel 9 as the key to understanding everything the Bible says about the end times. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. And so how much more would we profit from taking the same approach and following the counsel of Jesus and studying Daniel together? The beginning of Daniel's story finds him, as fascinating as it is, in a very, very difficult situation. We want to slow down and take a step back from looking at the big view of history and all these fascinating events and put ourselves in Daniel's place. He is in all likelihood only somewhere between 12 and 15 years old. That's how old he is. That's how old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. His parents have either been killed or at best he's never ever going to see them again. He's been kidnapped against his will He has been marched a distance of roughly 800 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon to a foreign country where the culture is completely different. They are going to change his name 
and he's going to be intensely groomed in the ways of Babylon to serve as counsel to the king that conquered his homeland. And while he's in Babylon, hoping that maybe things are going to turn around, he's gonna hear of the second siege, and then he's gonna hear of the third siege and the absolute destruction of his homeland. And how does that feel when you're a young person longing for home to find out home doesn't even exist anymore? It's gonna break his heart. And here's the thing. None of this is Daniel's fault. None of it is his fault. We're going to learn from the way he handles himself that there is no way that Daniel was participating in all this wickedness that was going on in the country of Israel. Most of the time in life, the difficult situations we face are ultimately of our own making. But Daniel's gonna teach us about how a person of faith deals with those difficult seasons and circumstances that sometimes happen in life where we didn't do anything wrong. There's just something awful happening. We're in a very difficult situation and we didn't do anything to bring it upon ourselves. And if that's you today, I wanna encourage you to pay especially close attention to the things Daniel does and the things Daniel does not do. He's a great example for you and I. Pay attention to how he remains faithful to God and never blames or rants at God. He recognizes the things that are out of his control and he has faith that God is doing something behind the scenes. Later on in life, God's gonna use Daniel as an amazing prophet, but there are gonna be years that pass before that moment comes. And as Daniel is going through the most difficult first few years, God is not gonna show up and say, Daniel, I know this is difficult, but here's the thing. I'm raising you up to be a mighty prophet. I'm gonna use you to change the destiny of a nation. He he doesn't do that. Daniel just has to have faith that God is up to something, even though his world is falling apart all around him. You see, it's easy to post inspiring quotes on Facebook when life is good, but it's when things get difficult, when the squeeze is on, when the heat is turned up, that who we really are and what we really believe is revealed. And when Daniel is put under tremendous pressure, the reason he's so special is because of what comes out of his life in that situation. Unlike most of us most of the time, what comes out of his life when the pressure is on is praiseworthy and exemplary. So let's jump into our text. Daniel chapter one after the world's longest introduction We'll move pretty quickly through this, but you had to know all that. Daniel chapter one, verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, underline the Lord, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So this is the first siege that we talked about. And we see from verse two that the Lord was the one directing events. The Lord is the one who makes Nebuchadnezzar victorious, even though it seemed from the outside like they had just been conquered by a more powerful army. 
We also see that Nebuchadnezzar returns to Babylon with treasure and artifacts from the temple in Jerusalem. And just make a mental note that anytime you see the name Shinar, it's just a reference to Babylon. If Babylon is the city, Shinar is the region, the region of Mesopotamia where Iraq is located today. It's first mentioned in Genesis 10.10 where we're told that the man named Nimrod established the city of Babylon in the land of Shinar. The journey from Jerusalem to Babylon, as we mentioned, is around 800 miles. It would have taken several months because all these people would have been marched by foot from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse three, then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. This is like every woman's Christian mingle profile right here. I'm not asking for a lot. I just want a young man in whom there's no blemish, who's good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. That's that's all I want. That's all I'm looking for. It says, verse five, and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So Nebuchadnezzar has the best and brightest teenage boys, 12 to 15 years old, brought to Babylon to begin this three-year assimilation process we talked about. The goal is that at the end of this process, they're going to be Babylonian in their thinking. They're going to be Chaldean in their cultural place, and they're going to be able to serve the king as his advisors. This was a big deal. They're being trained in the palace. They were having three years invested in them by the greatest teachers in Babylon. They were eating the best food, drinking the best wine, the same diet as the king. In some ways, things could be a lot worse. And understand that Babylonian knowledge was among the most advanced in the world. Their knowledge of astronomy was incredible. Concepts we use today like 360 degrees in a circle, 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a minute, all have their origin in Babylon. In verse six we read, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you see, we all know them from the kid song of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but those are their Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. You see, part of the assimilation, part of breaking them from their Jewishness and causing them to become Babylonian culturally was to give them new Babylonian names. Daniel means God is my judge, and he's renamed Belteshazzar, which means Baal is my judge. Hananiah, which means Jehovah is gracious, is renamed Shadrach, which means the command of a coup. Aku was the moon god of war and his symbol was a crescent moon and he was worshiped by the Babylonians. Mishael, which means who is like God, is renamed Meshach, which means who is like Aku. As a side note, 
before God calls him into a relationship with him, Abraham was a worshiper of the moon god, Aku, who was known then simply as All, and was represented still by this crescent moon. That God, All, would remain throughout history, and his name would evolve into Allah, Allah, Allah. And his symbol to this day would continue to be the crescent moon of Islam. That's the origins of Allah, the Islamic God. It's the moon God, Aku, the moon God, all who was originally worshipped by Abraham and then continued to be worshipped by Ishmael. And then Azariah, which means the Lord helps, is renamed Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo. Nebo was the Babylonian god of scribes, wisdom, and literature. So notice that the name of the Lord appears in the meaning of each of their Hebrew names. But now imagine being put in the shoes of these guys. Every time your name is spoken, you are being connected by name to a Babylonian false god. The spiritual oppression they were under must have been so intense. The pressure to fit in was extreme. And by changing their names, they were pretty much telling them, you guys will assimilate. This is gonna happen. You're gonna be Babylonian sooner or later. And if they did assimilate, if they did just say, well, let's just go with it. Let's just give ourselves over to the process. There was a very comfortable and powerful life waiting for them. You gotta understand the pressure and the temptations they were under in order to fully appreciate the radical commitment of these young Hebrew men. What would you have done in that situation? How would you have approached it? Well, God is sovereign, and so if I'm here, I'm probably meant to do this stuff, you know? And uh, let's just roll with it. What would you have done in that situation? Mom and dad aren't around anymore. There's, there's nobody looking over your shoulder who's gonna say you shouldn't be doing that. What would you have done? Verse eight, and then underline this. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. You see, Daniel knows that he's not supposed to be getting drunk and he's not supposed to be eating meat that was sacrificed to pagan gods, which all the meat would have been. But here's the interesting thing. This is still a grayish area. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8, hey, hey, this is like a gray area. If you've got a conviction from the Lord not to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, you gotta stick with that conviction. But if you don't have a conviction about it, then it's just meat, it's no big deal. Paul's advice to us is that we should each follow the convictions the Lord gives us in gray areas while being considerate to one another. So it would have been very easy for Daniel to say, I'm sure the Lord will understand. I mean." What does God want me to do? There, there's no meat that hasn't been sacrificed to idols. But clearly the Lord gave Daniel a conviction about this issue and so Daniel knew he would be going against the will of God if he indulged in this food and in this drink. And here's what I wanna point out about this. Daniel's convictions came from the Lord, not from his environment. Daniel's convictions came from the Lord, not from his environment. You see, Daniel didn't have one set of convictions in Israel and then another set of convictions in Babylon. His environment, the peer pressure, didn't change his convictions. They were rock solid, which tells us something else about Daniel. 
that pretty much all scholars are in agreement over. Make a note of this. He had God-fearing, God-honoring parents. God-fearing, God-honoring parents. You see, Israel may have been living in rampant sin, but you do not get a God-fearing young teenage boy with the strength of character of Daniel out of nowhere. Clearly, Daniel came from a family that was committed to honoring the Lord. He and his brothers had been raised to resist evil in such a strong way that they continued to do that even when their parents were removed from the equation. Whatever Daniel saw in the lives of his parents, he knew it was real. He knew his parents weren't hypocrites. He had been raised seeing and believing that God honors the faith of those who honor him. And those of you who have kids, here's the question. Can your kids look at you and say, here's what I know about mom and dad. They will honor and serve the Lord regardless of their circumstances. When times are tough, my parents don't say, hey, there's no point going to church because what has God done for me lately? What are you praying for? God still hasn't solved this problem. Can your children look at you and say, listen, my parents, they're gonna honor and serve the Lord no matter what, no matter what. Even when Daniel's world fell apart, there was nothing in him that said, oh, well, here's what we all know. When things go south in a hurry, it's time to abandon God because God's apparently abandoned us. There's nothing in him that thought that way. He had been raised to understand we don't only serve God when life is easy. We serve God because he's God, because he loves us, because we are his. And even if our circumstances change, those truths do not change. In Deuteronomy 6, it's on your outlines, God gives this charge to the families of Israel. Some of you will recognize this, it's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then this is his charge to parents. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, underline, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. God is saying love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and teach your kids to love God. Talk about God all the time. Talk about him at the dinner table. Talk about him over breakfast. Talk about him when you put them down to bed at night. Daniel's parents actually did that. The most important schooling your children will ever receive will take place in your home. In your home. Some scholars have even suggested that Daniel's parents may have been students of prophecy in the sense that as God-fearing people, they were noticing Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they're saying we're gonna be taken off to Babylon at some point. God's judgment is gonna come. And there's a chance that our son Daniel may be taken from us one day. And so they give him a name that's not common at the time. They give him the name, God is my judge. And there's some commentators who read into that and say, listen, because that's not a common name, there's a very good chance that the one thing they wanted Daniel to remember if he were to ever be separated from them, taken off to Babylon is this, that God is his judge. He answers to God before anyone else. 
The starting point of parenting is to have a relationship with God that our kids can look at and say, that's real. That's real. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. But we got to have a relationship with God that our kids and our grandkids can look at and say, that's real. What they've got is real. They have a relationship with God. Verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. It's incredible, already Daniel has the favor of the chief of the eunuchs, the man overseeing their three-year assimilation process. But this was a high-stakes affair. At the end of these three years, these men would be brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar would basically interview them. He would ask them questions to determine whether or not they would be useful to him. If they were not found to be useful, he would have them beheaded on the spot along with Ashpenaz, the eunuch who had been charged with their training. And so the prospect of displeasing Nebuchadnezzar was terrifying. And so Ashpenaz is saying, listen, I'm not gonna have you come stand before the king looking emaciated because you won't eat the food that he gives you. I mean, this is the food that the king himself gave you. I'm, I'm not gonna take that chance. I'm really fond of living. I like my head. It looks great on my shoulders. I'd like it to stay there. You see, the prospect of displeasing Nebuchadnezzar was terrifying. It was not unusual for him to do what he did to Zedekiah, which is kill a man's sons in front of him and then gouge his eyes out so it's the last thing that he ever saw. It was not unusual for him to roast his lackluster military officers to death over a fire. He was known for turning people's homes into dunghills. In fact, he's going to threaten that in the very next chapter. He's not a great guy at this point in his life. So no wonder Ashpenaz is like, Daniel, buddy, you know I love you. But I'm not going to risk my head because you're looking for a gluten-free diet, okay? We're not going to do that. Verse 11 So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days, just 10 days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants." So he consented with them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. So Daniel goes to the, the next guy down the ladder under Ashpenaz, his like sub-manager, and says, let's just do a 10-day trial. Nothing can happen in 10 days that can't be undone. So just do a 10-day trial and then compare us and our physique to the physique of those who've been eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine and then do whatever you think is best. And the guy's like, all right, sounds reasonable. Verse 15, and at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So this employee of the king is no dummy. He's like, I don't know why this is working, but this is working. Everybody do what they're doing from now on. It's a simple principle that holds true to this day for you and I. Make a note of this. The Lord's way of doing things always produces wholeness. The Lord's way of doing things always produces wholeness. You see, people might say, I'm eating like a king. 
yeah, but, but you're not healthy. You're miserable. You don't have peace. You don't have joy. But the Lord's ways always produce wholeness, even if on the outside, other ways look more extravagant, more luxurious, and look like they'll be more fun. The other thing I'm reminded of is that the Lord is always more interested in moving when it's gonna be obvious that he's the only one who could be responsible. The Babylonian concept of what was handsome was a strapping, strong, muscular physique. And eating only vegetables when you're a teenage boy with that sort of metabolism is not a great way to pack on pounds of muscle. Popping sunflower seeds is not how you get that done. But God says, this is great. Now there can be no confusion over who's taking care of you guys. Sometimes you feel like you're at a disadvantage and the deck is stacked against you when really what God is doing is he's simply setting things up in your life, setting things up in my life so that there's no confusion when things turn around that he is the one who has intervened into your life. God loves to operate that way because sometimes we're so slow to give him credit. So he says, okay, I gotta make it real obvious that I'm the one who's working in your life. Verse 17, as for these four young men, underline God gave. God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So notice this, don't miss this. Obeying the Lord in one area, diet, food and wine, led to God's blessings in completely unrelated areas, knowledge, literature, wisdom, interpreting dreams and visions. This is what I want you to write down. There's no area of life where faithfulness to God is insignificant. There's no area of life where faithfulness to God is insignificant. Because what did Jesus say in Luke 16? He said, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. We say, you know what? I'm gonna be faithful in the big things. I'm not gonna cheat on my spouse. I'm not gonna steal any large amounts of money, but, but in some of these little things, these little areas in life, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna fudge the numbers a little bit on my taxes. I'm gonna not declare everything when I come across the border. I don't need to do all of that. I'm just gonna do my own little thing. Because I don't think God cares about the little stuff, but the Lord says, it's all big stuff. It's all big stuff. And when I can trust you to be faithful with that little stuff, then I can trust you to be faithful with the big stuff. You see, some of us have big things in our life. We're frustrated that the Lord isn't trusting us with more. But there are some little things in our life that we just will not be faithful to honor the Lord in. And we're looking at the big thing being like, well, I'm checking all the big boxes, and God is not looking at that. He's saying, that's great, but what about this this thing right here, this one little thing that you just refuse to do my way. You don't think it's related? And the Lord is saying, that's everything. And if you would just honor me in that little thing, then I would know I can trust you with the bigger things. 
You can't cherry pick with God. There's no area of life where faithfulness to God is insignificant. It all matters. Verse 18, now at the end of the days, so at the end of the three years, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. This is a tense moment. There's no more time. They've learned everything they could learn. They're standing before the king. The chief of the eunuchs is there. The executioner's standing off on the side, sharpening his ax just in case. This is a tense situation. Verse 19, then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus. You see, one of the reasons Nebuchadnezzar created this assimilation program was because he inherited his father's court. Babylon had a very, very interesting setup. His court was made up of men known as magi. Some of you know them from the magi who came to honor Jesus at his birth. The word magi is short for magician. That's what the word magi means. And in Babylon, some of you will remember from other studies, Babylon is basically the seat. It's the origin point of all pagan religions. Babylon is the birthplace of paganism and worshiping false gods. And it's always had strange sort of satanic mystical properties even as a place. We're really gonna see that as we get further into Daniel. And so their government was a really strange fusion between practical political wisdom and the occult. They were heavy into the occult. And so the king's counselors were expected to provide a fusion of practical knowledge and wisdom, head knowledge, and supernatural insight that they gained through the occult. So when they told the king to do something, it was supposed to be advice based on this is what is wise, but this is also what the spirits are saying we should do. So they were heavy into the occult. It was a very mystical, spiritually oppressive environment. And Nebuchadnezzar inherits all these magi who served in his father's court. And he's a skeptic. He's a skeptic. These magi were what's called a hereditary priesthood. So again, they were politicians, but they were also religious priests. And they were all from the same family line. And they didn't rule the country, but they had to vote over who they would appoint as the next king. So they had approved Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar gets in there, and the truth is he thinks that they're probably most likely a bunch of cronies. They don't really have any supernatural insight. And so what he's doing with this assimilation process is Nebuchadnezzar is very wisely saying, I need to get some advisors in my court who I chose, that are my guys who have been handpicked by me that I know can offer me good, wise counsel. So even as this is going on, you can sort of imagine the tension that exists between the native hereditary priesthood, the Magi, and these new Hebrews who are being brought in on almost uh, an equal footing with these guys who have been serving there for decades. There's ethnic tension, there's positional tension going on, and that's going to come to a head in chapter two. We're going to find out that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't think these guys have any supernatural powers at all. 
And so he's going to put them to a fascinating and very colorful test, a high stakes test, to put it mildly, so you don't want to miss next week. Well, let me wrap it up by saying this. God has created each of us with a purpose and a destiny. He created you with a purpose and a destiny. He created you on purpose to represent him on the earth. But we currently live in a world that is under the control of Satan. We really do all live in Babylon, speaking spiritually. And we all face spiritual pressures from a culture that wants to tell us that we have a different name. We, we live in a culture that says, you're not really child of God, you're child of anything else. You can be child of self and, and just honor yourself as God. You can be child of enlightenment. You can be child of materialism. Anything other than child of God. We live in a culture that is constantly trying to give us a new name and a new direction and a new purpose. You see, God has a plan for your life, but so does Satan. So does Babylon. And every time you turn on the TV, every time you see commercials telling you what you should want, Super Bowl is going on right now. People are spending millions on commercials to tell everybody what they should want. This is what you should want to drive. This is what you should want to eat. This is what you should want to wear. This is what you should want to watch. This is what you should want to be. All that stuff is this Babylonian assimilation process that goes on in our lives almost every moment of every day because we understand that just as the Holy Spirit is working to conform us into the image of our maker and creator, Jesus Christ, we have an enemy as well who is working to conform us into his image as well. That is what is going on in our Babylon all the time. But we're called to be like Daniel. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. You see, we live in Babylon, but Babylon is not our home. And we're gonna find that one of the great things about Daniel is that he never forgot that. He honored God where he was. He was faithful where he was placed. But he never forgot, this is not my home. This is not my home. I'm not from here. And this is not your home. This is not my home. This is not where we're going to live forever. So we honor God, we be faithful where he has placed us. We keep our faith and our trust in him. Even if your world is falling apart and you have no control over it, you stay faithful. You stay faithful because you have control over that. You can always choose to be faithful where you are right now. And if that's all you can do, that's exactly what you should do anyway. And that's what we're going to take from Daniel's example for today. Be faithful, stand in faith, don't waver, and watch what the Lord does in your life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. And uh, Father, we just want to pray for, for those that don't know you, those family members, those friends, those co-workers, those fellow students you've put in our lives. And and Lord, I just think right now about how they are being uh, bombarded by commercials, even, even right now, um, trying to get them to commit their lives to chasing something that we know is not ultimately gonna make them happy. It's not ultimately gonna bring them joy. It's not ultimately gonna bring them peace and satisfaction and fulfillment. Father, for those that don't know you, we pray that you would reveal yourself to them in an over way, in a way that would reveal you 
to be the higher, greater one that you are that would put everything else in its place and leave only you. May their hope be found in you, Jesus. And then, Lord, we thank you for the incredible example of this young man, Daniel, and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their faithfulness to you in a very, very difficult circumstance. Lord, we recognize in our lives that there are things we do not have control over. But Lord, we also recognize that we're in Babylon and this is not our home. And we understand that just as you were directing the great events of the world in the days of Daniel, you are directing the great events in our world today. And your purpose will be accomplished as it always is. So Father, we just confess again that we trust you. We love you. We hope in you, Jesus. And we pray that you would be honored by our faith, that it would be strong. Bless you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.